Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, a very special and a very qualified guest with us here on Make It Plain today to talk about what we've all been hearing about down in Georgia, Lord have mercy, with the primary that took place on Tuesday. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about her. Uh, she's actually a scholar. Um, she not only has her BA, but she has a JD from West Virginia University. And at West Virginia University, she was a W.E.B. Du Bois Fellowship recipient. So appropriately, uh, she's in Atlanta now. Uh, she's a movement journalist. Uh, she's host of her own podcast, The Way with Anoa, talking politics and current events through a black progressive feminist perspective. And she's written for a number of publications. At one time, she was with the New Georgia Project, which was the nonpartisan effort and is a nonpartisan effort that was working directly with uh, Georgia voters, uh, registering and engaging Georgia voters there. She was a director of digital strategy and storytelling. She's also done work with Democracy for America in the role of city's electoral manager. But right now, she's a staff reporter for PRISM, ourprism.org, and PRISM's coverage of electoral justice 
and voting rights. So very happy to have with us here on the show, Anoa Changa. Anoa, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you and, and glad to know that your family is, is healthy and safe in this, in this craziness. Uh, and as I said, you're in Atlanta. Yes. Have you, has Atlanta started reopening yet at all? Or I believe Georgia actually led the way in the quote unquote reopening. But, um, you know, Keisha, our mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, has actually had encouraged uh, a lot of caution despite what our governor uh, was saying. So there, there are quite a few sh restaurants and shops that had reopened, uh, but a lot of them still continued. I don't, I don't go out much. My kids do the grocery shopping, but um, there have been some restaurants that are still remained um, just uh, carry out only. I think some are starting to finally do dine in again, but still very limited. Um, but there was a real focus on like, even if people were reopening, um, not uh, doing dine-in, at least just doing carry-out, which we had a number of, of, of restaurants that stayed open throughout this whole period as dine-in, I mean, as carry-out only anyway. So um, there was also actually a letter that went out from a bunch of restaurant owners here in the metro area saying that they weren't reopening when um, the president and the governor were encouraging because uh, they were putting their workers uh, first. So this is not a plug for any of those restaurants, but just noting that there there is a certain level of conversation as least happened in the metro area about being responsible in this way. So we want to talk about your coverage of the primary, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was a, sounds like it was a hot mess. Hot mess, whole mess. It so, was avoidable, but it was a mess. So my first question to you is, Anoa, how did you let that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, <laughs> because I am the queen of Georgia and I rule everything. <laughs> Going back to 2018, when I was ballot chasing uh, as a volunteer of provisional ballots, I mean, but being being really honest, right? Like going back to the administration of Brian Kemp as Secretary of State, who is now um, governor, um, and then just really looking at the the, the increase in uh, voter suppression in the state post uh, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, which shall be uh, you know beholder. Like you have seen an explosion in um, polling closures and consolidations. And one of the things that was you know in part of the coverage and the conversations I've had with um, there's actually a collective of voting and civil rights organizations that formed a voter empowerment basically they're they're like a, the voter protection version of the justice league i like to say uh i'm actually stealing that from cliff albright so i can't even take credit but um they came together so aklima uh who's with all voting and local was actually you know pointing out that part of the issues with we've already had all these poll closures and consolidations between 2013 with the voting with the, the gutting of the voting rights act and 2018 election but now with covid-19 we saw the notice the notice requirements that were usually in place that would give a little protection um, were basically non-existent. Um, myself as a Fulton County voter, I received notice of my polls. I was aware of my poll location change, but I received the actual notice of my poll change um, yesterday, which was actually the day after our primary. And there are numerous people who are on social media pointing out the same thing. The letters are actually dated May 22nd, um, but for whatever reason, they, they were not delivered until, you know, it's possible they were delivered. I mean, you know, we also have the challenges with the postal service, right? Our postal workers who work very hard, who are cash strapped. Um, there's actually testimony before Congress happening later on today, but you know, they're giving us 
their best to get us our mail on time. So any reliance on getting people information at the last minute on the postal service was like a really poor planning. So when we think about how myself or others, you know, let this happen, I mean, we really do have to have a real, and I know I, I, I'm, I'm joking along with you, but, but we really think about the conversation and the work that was being done ahead of the 2018, um, you know, general election and the work that Stacey Abrams um, put in along with the organization that I used to work for, the New Georgia Project led by NSA Ufad. I mean, we now have organizations like All Voting is Local, which I believe is, um, you know, a newer organization, but there are so many groups and collectives, Black Voters Matter, that have been working to help educate and inform and engage people to make sure that they are aware of, you know, the, the opportunities in terms of voting and why it's important. But beyond the elections is matter rhetoric that we often tell people are here, you know, making sure that they're also standing on the front lines as a safeguard around voter suppression, because we know that we have had hundreds of thousands of people, um, you know, expelled from the rolls, and many of them have, it's been done in correctly in their instances. There was an attempt to attempt to purge the rolls back in 2017 of people who had actually moved within the same county, which under the National Voting Registration Act is not permissible. You're not supposed to remove people simply because they move within the same county. There are other things that can trigger removal, but that was determined to be not one of them. Um, the ACLU actually bought suit in that, in that case. Um, and that was a couple hundred thousand people who were wrongfully being told that they were about to be moved to inactive status. So there are all these different things that are at play here. But what we're seeing right now um, is, is not just, you know, we watched what unfolded in Wisconsin, right, with the partisan battle over, you know, whether or not to expand deadlines or absentee ballot use and just what was happening. And Wisconsin was earlier on in this pandemic moment. Georgia, rightfully so, moved its presidential primary back from, you know, March 24th to May 19th, which was um, our original state primary. And then even looking and understanding what was going on with the pandemic, moved it again, rightfully so, um, into this past June 9th. So we had an extra two and a half months uh, in terms of the Secretary of State and making sure that the counties had the resources that they need. Also recognizing that we have counties that have been hard hit by COVID in the state of the state of Georgia has been hard hit by COVID-19, right? And so we also have, I mean, I, I have been, been to, we, we have people, county workers who themselves have been hit and, high, and heavily impacted as, you know, a worker base, as families, as communities. So to put the added pressure of also scaling up absentee ballot use again, which we understand is necessary to make sure that people can cast their ballots, you know, safely and feel also like they don't have to choose between their health and their well-being and, you know, exercising the right to vote. But the support for, you know, the actual counties to do this properly and do it well consistently across the board just didn't, was not there in terms of the Secretary of State. Instead of forming a task force or something to figure out how to standardize across Georgia's 159 counties in early April, the Secretary of State announced that he was launching an absentee ballot fraud task force that was later announced to be staffed by predominantly uh, white conservative prosecutors. Um, and then the two elections officials who were on, or three, it was two or three elections officials on this, on the, on this, on the commission, um, were also people who were not experienced in these larger urban districts like Fulton County, like DeKalb County, that have, you know, large scale, large populations of voters. So there was a lot that went, it wasn't just simply that things went wrong or the pandemic or, you know, people are passing the bug. We have this deep history of active voter suppression and this false narrative of voter fraud and really actually attempting to criminalize voter fraud in the state of Georgia that 
that that really obfuscated the need to have more systemized work happening consistently across all 159 states. Wow. Um, so I'm gonna start with the first thing you said. Uh, you mentioned the, the polling place closures. Mm-hmm. Now, what's what's that about? Is is that something deliberate? Uh, is or is that a, a result of? Because I mean, I guess we know that there are even workers in polling places that may have been affected by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Did that have anything to do with it, or was this just something the Secretary of State decided to do? So when we go back and look, I believe it's a 2015 or 2014 memo. Um, so there's, there's, like I said, it goes back to a long, the long history of basically the, the tenure of Brian Kemp, who's now our governor, right? Um, but when you go back to 2014 or 2015, we had all these polling closures. So Georgia lo- reduced, I believe it's like around 200 polling locations um, from between 2014, 2013, up until the 2018 election. Folks may remember seeing um, the news of, of a Randolph County, which tried to close all, but I believe it was two polling locations in a predominantly black rural county in Southern Georgia, right? And people just happen to get wind of it because when they do provide notification, oftentimes the notice requirements are very minimal. So it's very easy for the public to not even know what's going on, but at least they can say, well, we gave notice, right? In this instance, what we're talking about in terms of the pandemic with the consolidations or um, so like my polling location for my community is in a senior facility, right? And it's understandable that a senior facility would not want to have people coming in and out of the building to vote. Um, a lot of like one of my, my, my father lives in a senior building and they haven't even been allowing uh, visitors in still, right? So it's understandable that we wanna, you know, make sure that we're protecting, you know, vulnerable populations, our elderly, et cetera. But, you know, when we, they consolidated a bunch of different uh, locations into one site that had upwards of three, four, five hour long waits yesterday. So like not accommodating. So it's fine that we're gonna, that we're gonna move polling locations. It makes sense that we're moving poll locations from, from vulnerable areas, like a senior facility. Um, there were some churches, I believe, that also decided they were no longer going to be polling locations for similar concerns and considerations. But in doing so and making these alternatives, and we saw this happening in Milwaukee, um, which reduced the number of polling locations that it had, you know, and, and they're doing it for public health reasons, but the problem is then we see people who are trying to exercise their right to vote for various reasons they could not vote previously by absentee ballot. So we have these long lines, we have like, so there's like a, mul- there, there are multiple levels going on here, right? There is the public health concern, which is understandable, but how they're responding and actually adapting in the moment and the lack of communication, also the lack of support for different counties from, because, the Secretary of State is our state election administrator. Like, like the bottom, the buck stops there. They're responsible with administration of elections. So making sure that the states, and we've seen funding being provided, at least in the initial CARES Act, for elections to kind of help in this pandemic moment. It is unclear what was done with the funds that were requested, if the funds requested would actually, was actually delivered, um, and what support was provided to the counties, and I think that's going to continue to unfold. I will note, in Fulton County, while... I think that there is another conversation about Fulton County in the way the head of Fulton County's Board of Elections has actually administered elections. As I mentioned, as a Fulton County voter, 
myself, like I've mentioned this on Twitter before, like myself, my daughter's a first time voter. We had difficulties getting our absentee ballots. Um, one of the members of my, my general, my direct community is the head of Atlanta's uh, school board. Um, the school board chair in Atlanta had was never even got his absentee ballot. His wife got hers at the last minute. They, or they did them at the same time, he never got his. But what I found, like from just my own, just trying to figure out who to, who to call, who to get on the phone, who to email, is that Fulton County actually had two different email addresses of where they were accepting absentee ballots at. So I was able to email this other email address and get my, my ballots processed right away. Whereas, um, you know, other people were like, wait a minute, there's another email address to try. And so I would give it out to people like I was posting about it and would give it out to people as they asked. But like there were these other things that happened in Fulton County. And again, recognizing that workers themselves were heavily impacted by COVID as well. And they're also, you know, having to go in and do this laborious work without, you know, the necessary resources. But we still had over two months to prepare for the scaling up and use of pen. I mean, we, we already knew that we were gonna have, you know, record increased turnout for this election, just because of what we've seen happen in the state post 2016 and the work of so many organizations to increase, engage and expand. I mean, Georgia is going to be a majority minority state. I hate that term, I have to find a different language, but we're going to be majority black and brown um, in the next, this decade, right? It's estimated that Georgia will turn majority black and brown this decade, later this decade, will be the first state to flip that way in the South. And so there is a lot at stake. There's a lot that's been happening. So there's like, there's multiple levels to it, right? So there is some intentionality in the ways in which these decisions are made or the failure to act. One of the things that has been highlighted by voting rights activists in their coalition statement yesterday, um, they were just talking about how they have, they actually put out letters, they, they actually tried to reach out to the Secretary of State over the past two months to make suggestions on improvements, to make requests, to offer help and assistance to various counties, boards of elections, as well as the Secretary of State, because people foresaw what was happening. In testimony before the pandemic even hit back in March, there is a, there's a piece of legislation actually that was pending, um, SB, uh, Senate Bill 463, I believe it is, where they were actually trying to, the Secretary of State and the State Board of Elections wanted to actually delegate certain responsibilities to adhere with federal laws and other legal requirements directly to the states themselves. So, I mean, the counties themselves. So the counties themselves will be re required to like make sure they were adhering to constitutional re requirements, federal requirements, et cetera. And also it will put the burden on the counties to have to handle um, lawsuits and other things that arise versus like the, the state system. Like we have a unified election system, right? In other states, so in Pennsylvania, for example, different counties make different decisions about about their voting machines, et cetera. All of those decisions, like the voting machines that we have that did not work, all that decision-making happened at the state level. So there's so much that happens at the state level. They didn't want to put the burden without also providing the, the, the training, expertise, and financial support to the counties to carry out this work. And when you look at how counties are organized in this state, there are particular counties that just, that just the same way we think about the way our communities are organized and funded, it, it's, it's a very similar dynamic here. The other issue with that bill, which we've now seen playing out and had concerns about, was around signature match issues. Um, when you use absentee ballots, um, there are some concerns around signature match. Signature matching is one of the things that's done as a security measure, and people should be provided with the opportunity to what's called cure their ballot. So if there's an issue or people don't think the signature matches, that person should be allowed to come in and, and also 
find some other way to prove their identity so that their ballot can actually be, be cast. And we know that in a lot of instances, we have high rates of ballots being thrown out or not processed, even ballot applications. Um, I had a young man, a, a friend's son, complain about his ballot application was rejected twice. He was never given the opportunity to cure to prove his identity. He was told you just have to show up on election day. We have no clue how many other people had such experiences in trying to actually just get through the process. And then back to your original question about polling locations, we now have closed consolidated polls. We have areas that already had like polling locations consolidating closed. We've been talking about Georgia, but in Clark County and Nevada, um, you know, Las Vegas had numerous closures and only had a few polling locations uh, open in the whole the whole county area in Clark County. So this is like something we're seeing in Georgia is the poster child for it. The only other state that has closed, I believe, per capita more polling locations in Georgia is Texas. Um, but it is it is something that really needs to be talked about, particularly in this pandemic moment where they're just closing polls or consolidating polls and causing uh you know, disarray and saying, oh, but it's a public health emergency without providing for contingencies. Yeah. And and y'all were closing polling places before the public health emergency. Yes. So that's yes. So now if I'm not mistaken, was there also an issue with some new machines? Yes. Did I not see the Secretary of State blame the, the counties where well, they should have gotten trained up better on the machines? And I'm looking like you the Secretary of State, fool. I mean how you just gonna Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the battle over the voting machines, and I have an article, if folks want to check it out, um, from on Rewire last year, like watching all that unfold. That was a piece of legislation where there were actually some good pieces to the legislation. It was, um, I think it was House Bill 316. Um, so what they did was they actually, there were a bunch of reforms. It was considered a bipartisan bill, but it really wasn't. It was bipartisan because what they did was there was a bill that had a bunch of reforms that Democratic legislators were really pushing for. Things like exact match, which is where um, if your name doesn't exactly match between like your license and the way it is in the DMV records, then they'll say you're not the same person and won't allow people to vote. This happened to multiple people. I mean, the best example is of exact match is actually Representative B. Nguyen, who is a Vietnamese American representative here in Georgia. Um, she actually pointed out in her testimony against that bill um, that, you know, if exact match were the rule in the state legislature, she would not be able to ever cast a vote because her name, as it is correctly spelled, and her name, as it's often spelled on rosters and meeting notices, is incorrect even though she's tried to correct it with the staff right there in the Capitol. Another uh, 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 state legislature, uh, state legislator, Renita Shannon, who's a black woman, same thing. Her name, Renita, is always misspelled in the state legislator herself, right? So they were able to point out the ridiculousness of this exact match because some people might hyphenate, uh, but you can't necessarily hyphenate if you're certain government agencies, et cetera. And Social Security and other um, federal agencies have already talked about like how you can't actually, like matching up like that doesn't mean that people aren't the same people. But this goes back into the specter of like voter fraud, right? Like how they try to make the case as if there are these large amounts of people. Um, it's also a way that they also, because it tends to target folks with um, like uh, Asian American or Asian or Hispanic surnames are often targeted this way as well the exact match just because of the differences culturally in the way that people's names are and so this is a way that they try to also remove people from the ballots and being able to access the vote um, but with the machines specifically 
uh, these are new machines. Our other ones were extremely horrible and antiquated, and these aren't really that much better. But they, there was a lot of concern about the machines, about issues with, you know, being able to have all the other equipment and what if the technology didn't work. And we saw numerous, numerous issues across the state with the machines, people reporting, um, you know, poll workers saying like the machines aren't cutting on, they didn't have the right asset access codes. And with the Secretary of State, some of their thing is like, well, the counties didn't do their job. The counties aren't the ones who selected these machines though, right? The counties aren't the ones that should be responsible for bringing in technicians and making sure they understood this this new re resource. And one of the things that advocates- made the machines, what company makes them? I can't remember. I think it might be Dominion. I can't remember because the problem is there were there were two different companies. I believe it's Dominion, but there are two different companies that the Secretary of State and Kemp's office have relationships with. And so that has also been a confusion around conflict of interest with this type of machine in particular. But one of the things that came up with, 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 with these machines in this whole process too was also in terms of like, an, again, unfunded mandates being passed onto already, you know, tight counties. And Fair Fight actually did an analysis ahead of the bill being, um, you know, passed that went through like what the potential costs could be to, because they were claiming that this was actually the cheap, there was a whole fight about what was better. Do we go to hand marked paper ballots um, or do we go to these machines, which they argue print out a paper ballot so it's more secure. But the problem is it prints out a ballot, but the actual readable portion, the actual portion that records our vote is, in a, is encoded in a barcode. And there are concerns, security concerns around whether or not barcodes are hackable and stuff. But like with these machines, there's also like printers and paper technicians. There were all these other costs that weren't being talked about. And so we saw some of that. We also saw that there were some machines that weren't working. Uh, in 2018 in Gwinnett County with our old machines, there was an issue at a polling location where machines were delivered and set up without electrical plugs put in. They were running on batteries, so they were down for several hours until someone could come out with plugs. We saw a similar issue again this year um, with machines that were delivered without electrical plugs, right? So like, and, and, and how that's ever even a thing. And only in particular communities do these types of things happen. And so it is a real concern somewhere in the system. And it's not, it's insufficient for the Secretary of State, whose ultimate job is to safeguard elections, just passes the buck in this way. Yeah, that ain't no accident. No, not twice, particularly, right? Like not twice in the but same county. But just hearing this, you know, and, and I'm, I mean, I'm a listener like everyone else listening to you now. Mm -hmm. described is really overwhelming and and it just it's just an utter discouragement like what's the point and on top of everything else and it's bad enough that a lot of our people just give up and bother not to vote anyway mm -hmm. even dealing with all of this it, it's it's overwhelming what so I'm asked about early voting. I guess that's just out, out the window, right? Is, is there any... So, early, so we have early voting in Georgia, but we had a similar issue in terms of the polling locations and consolidations, right? Um, you know, the last night of early voting, which was last Friday, June 5th, we actually saw people in line upwards of seven hours. That's like unheard of for early voting here um, because we usually have, you know, what, more than enough, you know, sites available. I know there are some counties that try to get more early voting sites, but early voting is is something that we are we are fortunate to have here in Georgia um, and folks did try to take advantage of that as well but a lot of people were waiting for their absentee ballots to come they were continuing to be advised to just wait because they were processing the ballots would be in the, in the mail there was actually a local um, investigative journalist for one of the tv 
TV uh, news channels here in Atlanta that expressed his frustration on Twitter because he was just like, I relied on what the Fulton County, you know, elections officials were saying, and I've been encouraging viewers to just wait and be patient. So a lot of people didn't even want to take the chance of early voting because we did have reduced, because again, when we're reducing the polling locations, but we still have the same number of people, we have more people standing in line, right? And even with social distancing, standing in line, it's just still not a good, you know, set of circumstances for everyone. And then you mix in the rain that we've seen here as well. Um, but so people were waiting. A lot of people didn't take advantage of early voting because they were waiting for their ballots to come because they were really hoping their ballots would come. And so voting on the day of was a last resort for a lot of people. Um, and I think that, you know, that's something to really consider. But to, to, the, to the point about overwhelming and discouragement, it really is. It can be, it can be discouraging if we didn't have the amazing cadre of people working both like the lawyers. I don't think people even understand how much like the lawyers involved, whether it's local lawyers here based in Georgia who work with different organizations or the support that our organizations here have gotten from the lawyers committee and the advancement project and other organizations. Um, you know, the national lawyers guild, which tends, I mean, we were talking, we've been talking about the elections, but even with the pandemic, and the protests, we've seen like the National Lawyers Guild and their legal observers really showing up in community too. Um, but we have these amazing organizations like the New Georgia Project, like Vote, like like Black Voters Matter. Um, we have you know organizations. We have Pro Georgia. We have like that's a whole roundtable of organizations that do year-round civic engagement work. And so that's why doing the deep organizing work that our folks do. Instead of just like when, when candidates show up like six weeks to our communities, like, hey, you need to vote for us because the end of the world is coming and you have to vote for me to stop it. You know, these people are building deeply um, and making civic engagement, not just something that is like put upon us, but that is really understood, but also bringing people into the process and fold, right, to understand more. So doing, you know, community forums outside of election time to talk about issues. I've seen a lot of these people who do the voting rights work shift to doing you know community support around the pandemic and having conversations in that respect as well right so i mean it can feel overwhelming but i feel like we have like a, such a strong cadre of people here in the state of georgia who do this work who are committed to like educating people and helping them understand the possibility we just have to get over the threshold right like i know everyone knows stacy and has heard stacy talk but there are so many more people we have asian Amer americans advancing justice we have we also have this really strong multiracial, multi-generational coalition of folks who are doing this work down here. And so, you know, everyone from, you know, you have, you know, younger organizers who are brand new voters who've been doing this since before they could vote. So we have, you know, our OGs who definitely remember um, a different time and struggle. And, and, you know, voter suppression is not the way, the way it's happening now is not the way we've seen it in movies, right? Like I was just watching a documentary recently about Freedom Summer, um, you know, voter registration efforts by SNCC down in Mississippi back in 64. And that was very blatant. It was very violent. It was very like in your face opposition, right? To, to black people being able to ex exercise the right to vote. Now what we're seeing is there's still some of the legal intimidation that goes on, but it's not that type of violence, right? It, 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 it's, it's very different in the way, but it's still very much a real thing and it can detract, attract people. And then we have the president of the United States repeating misinformation about voting, repeating misinformation, like intentionally, like intentionally misinforming people about the existence of voter fraud. And we have people who legitimize that, like our secretary of state, by by convening actual bodies to investigate something that's not real instead of expending resources on shoring up 
I mean, part of what needs to happen is Stephanie Choi, who's the executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, she said yesterday on a call that, you know, we really need for folks to like understand why we have to consistently stand in the gap and be at these boards of election meetings. And it's difficult because a lot of people work. There's a lot of things that need our time. But finding out how to plug into organizations to be able to make calls, be able to email, be able to show up if you can. Um, the Georgia NAACP has actually called for a rally at the uh, State House. We go back into our session was was postponed because of the pandemic. We go back into session on Monday, and they're actually calling for a rally, not just about the mishandling of the election, but because this election bill SB four six three is still you know a bunch of bills are put on hold because of the pandemic. So there's a bunch of legislation that they're trying to push. But one of the things is really having a new approach and a new relationship with the way people are voting and engaging. Because yes, the vote is important and it's our ancestors fought for it, all great things people tell us, but there's something so much more empowering that we need to talk about like electoral organizing and how we're stepping into space, which is why I am really appreciating being able to do what we call electoral justice coverage. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about electoral justice as discussed by the Movement for Black Lives and other practitioners, because it's more than just getting people to vote for a particular candidate or in a particular cycle. It's about really shifting and changing the way we're engaging and how we're all collectively fighting to make democracy work for our communities as well. Any of that legislation coming forward, is any of it good on our side? <laughs> Um, so there are, there's, I'm not exact, I know most of the advocacy has been around just stopping some bills. And then also part of what, what's so important that people have been talking about um, is the need to flip some seats, right? And I, I, I think because we do see like, so we had the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey, which was covered up by two DAs and other folks here um, in Southwest, in uh, Southeast Georgia in Brunswick. Um, and, and so there's legislation, people are talking about the necessity of like hate crime laws and things of that nature, which a hate crime law, you know, that's on the back end after a crime has already been committed. Um, some of the things that are, you know, up for discussion right now, um, uh, State Representative Renita Shannon is actually looking at a law to repeal the citizen's arrest provision that exists here. Um, and the citizen's arrest provision, um, there was a deep dive, I forget what news outlet did it, which I did it first, but someone else did it first, a uh, deep dive that actually looks at the citizen, citizen's arrest provisions actually go back to, when we think back to Jim not even before Jim Crow, thinking about towards slavery and stuff, right? So like they have very deep racist, it's very racialized violence that's built into uh, these types of provisions. And even just thinking about more about like district, district attorney um, accountability in these matters, we had two DAs. We're actually now on the fourth DA in this case, but the first two DAs uh, basically conspired with each other to, you know, hide aspects of the case to get these two men off, um, and really three men, because the third person, it took so much for even him to be uh, arrested, right? And now we have other video and, and, and audio coming out. And so it is a lot. And then just thinking about like what we're seeing across the board, you know, with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I mean, when we're talking about what we need to be doing um, electorally, and we don't have to wait necessarily for another election cycle to come around to run a better person in these different slots. I mean, we do need to have a better understanding of what are the grants of authority for these different offices, right? So for our district attorneys, for our sheriff's offices, like where does their grant of authority, who, who, what's the check on them and how do we get to that, that seat of power, right? Like, so if there are proposals, you know, I know a lot of folks are talking about defund police right now. One of my friends was saying like, hey, you know, in areas where we have 
county sheriffs. County sheriffs are organized, depending upon your state, differently than a municipal police department. So what does their budget and how do, how do we have a say in their budgeting process? Here in Georgia, it's, it's potentially looking like that's actually something that's constitutionally or legislatively mandated. So that means engaging with folks at the state house level versus where in, you know, in the city of Atlanta, people will be engaging with the mayor's office and city council, right? So just understanding how uh, these different types of government work um, I think goes a long way. Uh, I had a conversation right after, um, right in the middle of a lot of what's been going on in Minneapolis uh, with uh, Hennepin County Commissioner uh, Angela Conley, um, who was actually the first Black person to be on the Hennepin County Commission in its entire existence, over 100 years, right? They've never had a Black person before. And so we were just discussing more about how people need to understand what county commissioners do, because that's actually, I mean, most of us rarely understand what our city council does, let alone county commissioners when we have that set up. But we need to understand like who these different bodies are, who the people are that are sitting on them, and then how they engage with our lives and what we as citizens can do because we ultimately have the purse strings as taxpayers, as members of, of our communities. And I also think that that's a lane that for a lot of folks, whether it's young folks who can't vote yet, or we have, you know, our folks who can't vote for various reasons, whether because they're non-citizens or whether because they are, you know, formerly incarcerated folks that have not had their rights restored. I mean, there is a way that people can be involved and engage in, in these political dynamics even if they can't directly go to the ballot. So that's like why my scope is a little bit broader than just the voting itself, because the voting is super important, but there's so much more that our communities and our folks can be doing in addition to voting. Of course, so I want to go back to the mail problem too. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. Because how do we deal with November if you already seeing there's a mail problem? We know we need vote by mail in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So it, was that all on the post office? blame the post office necessarily there are actually some so in part of my like since the pandemic happened and everyone started talking about vote by mail one of my first go-to's is always talking to like folks who already do civic engagement and voting work to understand more about like how this impacts and how this shifts things there's i think it's uh the election administration commission um but there's a federal agency that provides assistance to states and counties um, in terms of like their voting systems, right? And making sure they're in compliance. And so there is actually like two webinars that they did with some secretary of states and some other election administrators who already do vote by mail because we do have the five states that actually have vote by mail already. And then California had it in several of its counties. And I think it's shifting to vote by mail. But um, in the difference with vote by mail, I'll just note for folks real quickly is there, we, we keep calling it all vote by mail, but there is a difference between vote by mail systems and using absentee ballots. Because when you're scaling up and using absentee ballots, right, like we saw this in Ohio, we had this experience here in Georgia and multiple other states. So we have states that already allow people to use absentee ballots for any reason. We have states that very restrict who can use absentee ballots, right? Like I think it's a third of states um, very much restrict who can use absentee ballots. But in those states, you have multiple hurdles, right? You have to first get them to allow people to use absentee ballots. This is a battle that's happening right now in Texas, because Texas is one of those states that does not permit the use of absentee ballots by everyone. So you have to already get the state, and often it's the state legislature or the secretary of state that would need to um, either have an amended rule or actually pass emergency legislation to let that happen, right? And then, so now, now let's say we get to a spot, like West Virginia is, is a state where the secretary of state just decided to, yes, let everyone use absentee ballots, even though they ordinarily restrict it. 
and they sent out ballot applications to voters. Our Secretary of State did the same here. They did the same as well as in Ohio. But the problem is the timeline for an election, if we know that our U.S. Postal Service is delayed, right, because the U.S. Postal Service has also been, like, we know shipping has been delayed, period, because of the pandemic for various reasons, right? We have people affected. We have so many things on our whole supply chain have been affected by this pandemic. So we already know that. So when you're setting these, like, deadlines for elections and you're mailing things back and forth, so they mail out an application to folks. So then it takes however long it takes for that application. Estimated three to five days best. Some people could take weeks. We're not really sure what's happening depending upon different postal regions as well, right? So then the person gets their application and then they, let's say, let's say best case scenario, they turn right around and mail it right back if you have a stamp. That's if you have the stamp to even mail it back. So you mail it back, then they still have their own processing stuff that goes on internally. And then they mail you a ballot. So I mean, we could be at two, three weeks gone by now, right? If we're only setting a month for an election to happen. And then you, you know, you cast your votes, you mark a bubble stuff, and then you still have to have another stamp and mail it back in, right? And so like all that back and forth in a vote by mail system, it's, they have their list of people who are voting by mail. They just mail out the ballot, right? It skips all those other steps. And so that's like really an advocacy difference too. And there are people who are starting to ask like, can we just skip all those other steps and go straight to mailing a ballot? And so what's really interesting is even though you see a lot of national Republicans decrying this, right? You do have um, Secretary Wyman from Washington, who is a Republican Secretary of State. Um, you do have um, former RNC Chairman um, Michael Steele, who are all, you know, proponents of you know, having safe elections by vote, vote by mail and are not getting into like letting this be a partisan thing. They've actually been very clearly a part of conversations about how this is a nonpartisan concern because voting is something that people should be lifting up regardless of what your party affiliation is because it's literally a right that citizens all have equally or we're supposed to all have it equally, right? So when we're talking about the vote by mail in the US Postal Service, in the Postal Service, um, the head of one of the major postal unions has been doing press, and he's actually doing, he's, he's actually testifying before Congress um, at one. And um, part of his conversation is around that, that money that the Postal Service needs for various reasons, right? Not these structured loans and the other things that Republicans are trying to do to in Congress are trying to do the USPS, they actually need like an infusion of support. The other thing from what I've learned from some of these webinars that, that the secretaries of state who do vote by mail have been having is that there are like built-in conversations, like the US Postal Service has a whole elections division of people who actually are, are there to work with states and counties to coordinate about the mail because the way they batch the mail and do it differently, um, you know, that's something that they have to plan for as well. So if they're just making decisions over here not communicating, then that's a problem. So ultimately, I put the burden still back on the states themselves and their elections administrators, because if you're making these decisions and you're not talking to um, your post, your local postmasters, um, you know, we saw this happen in Wisconsin. We saw votes in, um, I think, I, I can't remember which area of Wisconsin, but we saw, we saw ballots that were never delivered right just because and and they're investigating looking into it and so yes it's a problem when the when the post service doesn't deliver mail but like when they're also overwhelmed and flooded and weren't able to prepare i mean that's something that elections administrators need to worry about but i think as voters as people who can step in because everyone can be an advocate or organizer when you inform yourselves i think this is something people should be talking to their elected leaders about 
are you making sure that you're talking to the U.S., you know, the Postal Service? I mean, if we had more local and state leaders along with voters actually agitating and making Congress take action, like we can't allow the Postal Service to just tank at this moment in particular, right? It's so necessary. Like, I'm supporting this medication by mail. I can't imagine the people who, you know, people, people, people depend upon the Postal Service for so many things. Right. And in this instance, we're depending upon it. It's it's crucial for our democracy. And last thing I'll note about the Postal Service, people have been voting by mail in this country since the Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. like, like soldiers voted by mail in the Civil War and they were able to make it work then. We can definitely make it work now. Make it work during the Civil War in the 1800s. You ought to be able to. Of course, he's against it because we know it would open up um, for a lot of us to vote. And that's, that's part of the struggle. Um, so now the question too is, I mean, there's money tied up on Capitol Hill to yes. help states mm -hmm. better their vote by mail systems. Um, but it still sounds like what you're saying, that money, that's another step. That money has to get to those states in time. And then those states need time and must swiftly implement it. I mean, we're, we're not that far away. It'll be November before we know it. So. Uh, what you shared with us, frankly, is not very comforting, Anoa. But we know what we we know what we got to do. Well, we got. I mean, we 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 come from communities and from people who have faced you know dire odds before. Right? Like that's the one thing that provides me comfort. Like even when we're talking about this, I'm like, yes, that is like <sighs> reading and writing and digesting it is a lot, right? As a as a voter myself, it is a lot. Knowing all people I know, knowing all that I know, what gives me comfort is like knowing what our aunt, what our predecessors have done. Like, I mean, I just recently did a conversation with um, some of the some of the folks from the SNCC Legacy Project, and it was so empowering to listen to folks who not only were mentored and guided in their work by Ella Baker and their youth, but like folks who were literally in Mississippi in 64 with the threat, the very real threat of violence um, and death. Uh, registering black voters right and alongside like Fannie Lou Hamer and other folks so like that that work is so really important and powerful and that's why I feel honored to actually even be doing this work being based in the south and just really looking at the great organizing that's happening it is frustrating it is overwhelming but as people often say if our votes didn't matter they wouldn't try so hard to to to, to, to quash it right but but what really is important to me and what i try to do in my work is really talk to the different organizers um part of that conversation was ashley henderson who is the executive director of the highlander center who's also a part of um, the movement for black lives and does work with the electoral justice project so like it's been very important for me to be able as much as possible to learn from my peers who are doing this work um directly as organizers kayla reed who, with action st louis um, who also is with the Electoral Justice Project, like being able to talk to them and understand about the victories. And like, I think we also need to redefine what we consider winning, right? Of course, we all want those really big wins. Yes, winning these bigger seats. I understand that I'm not saying that like getting back the, the, the White House to be able to get back uh, or to be able to, to make sure we can get the next couple of seats on the Supreme Court is not important of a, of a goal for folks. But I also think that we overlook the value and importance of state and local elections and how crucial it is 
for us to be present in those conversations because a lot of what we're seeing pan out because even if we get congress to act right even if congress doesn't want to act right right there's still the pressure of thousands of local electeds along with their communities that could really force something to change right so that is where my hope i mean it's cautious optimism but my hope really comes from like the work we've already seen our folks do um you know and and like i said i'm i'm, I'm in the middle of watching these multi-generational multi-racial formulations come together and really shift in charge and we we have some amazing lawyers that do this work as well who help pave the way so whether we're looking at the recent uh at least initial victory down in florida in terms of restoration of rights and you know the fact that uh they cannot uh, uh, hinge restoring people's voting rights on their ability to pay. Um, so that was that was really groundbreaking work that was done legally. And so we're seeing that aspect unfold as well. So I mean, really, when we're talking about like democracy form and what is at the core and whatever exists of American democracy, because that's also up for debate. I mean, there is a lot of amazing work that is to be done. And I also look at my own teen who just finished casting her ballot. And despite, again, knowing what I know about politics, she looked at me, she was like, that's nice, mom. I'm looking it up for myself. So I really do think that we have a lot of good stuff that is flowing. Um, and so it can be really easy to get like frustrated and despair. But you know, being in spaces and doing the work that you and I do, we do know that there are these amazing voices and amazing people out there. And, and that's what I just tend to, to, to hold on to and highlight um, as much as possible. Uh, no, and that's, that's, that's good. Um, so let me just ask you about a couple of things before we yeah. go in terms of what's happening in Georgia. So what, what, what happened? I know Warnock was running. So Warnock is still, so that's a, so, so we have two Senate seats. Yeah, I know. The other one that's in November. So okay. he wasn't on the ballot. Yeah. He was on the ballot. Okay. Okay. He's not on the ballot. So you've worked with Stacey. No, I work with NGP. I have not worked with Stacey. Okay. Well, okay, you were NGP. All right. But you know, obviously, you know, Stacey and yeah. So just asking your, your opinion as a voter. Okay. Should she be on a ticket? On the VP, the yeah. presidential ticket? Yeah. I, I, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I mean, so I will, this is what I'll say. As a, as a voter, right? As a voter, what I really think that people misunderstand about her, and I have my own personal critiques, like nobody's perfect, nobody is above critique and conversation, and there are things that she's done. I'd be like, why? Yeah, yeah. why? But at the same time, when I think when we look at like the trajectory of what's happening right now and the massive organizing, I mean, my two picks if, as a voter, my opinion mattered uh, in terms of vice president would be if it was not her, it would be Elizabeth Warren only because of the way in which they are understanding conceptualizing of policy and the needs right now of the entire country, whether people are able to vote for them or not. The one thing that I appreciate, well, there are many things I've appreciated about Stacey Abrams from, from watching her work since 2018. Um, but one thing that I saw that she was able to do is have hard conversations, whether people agree with her or disagree with her, right? Um, and, 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 or whether there's something immediately beneficial to her as a politician right and a lot of times people will enter conversations because it furthers a specific purpose right it'll get them certain votes or this is a set of donations we need or whatever i'm not saying that she's not a politician and hasn't done those things but i watched her have conversations with folks like um we we, we have the threat of um you know 280 cpg and we were having a lot of rhetoric back in 2017 2018 i mean still now but but 2018 was very uh uh 
you know, we Byron Kemp was talking about rounding up people with shotguns. We were hearing similar rhetoric um, from the president. And so on the immigration front for, you know, our folks who may be in mixed status or undocumented status families, you know, these things are very concerning. And I watched her, I showed up um, at, a, at a forum she had, and I watched her just sit and listen, her and her staff listen and listen to people, regardless of whether or not um, they could actually cast the ballot. The only other person I've seen do that besides her, I've seen Elizabeth Warren, do, I've been in a room with Elizabeth Warren doing that, but I've seen Julian Castro, I've been in a room with Julian Castro, so he would be the third person I would say as well. If those would be the three people, I, if I were to pick for VP, Julian did a forum down here in Atlanta with New Georgia Project and uh, Freedom University, which is a which is an organization that works with undocumented you know, college students. So that was a room full of people who could not vote for him at all. But you know, one of the things, the care, and he actually was pressed for time, but they, they shifted his schedule so that he could make time to give the students his full attention and make sure that people wanted selfies or talk to him that they had that space and aspect so that's like something that i value and i don't think that some of the other people who are being floated around we have seen that level of commitment to not just engaging with people but also with the the collective building across the board and stacy regardless of whether she's been a senator or not stacy has built an apparatus that actually exists nationally on this front, particularly as we're looking at system-wide voter suppression, disinformation, and what we know is coming in 2020. So, but, but so I'm also asking about Stacey, you know, someone that, of course, obviously we both mutually know, Marcos of Daily Coast and Civics. So Marcos Melissa says to me, he said it several times on this show, that the polling and numbers he looks at suggest mm -hmm. that if Stacey were on the ticket, it would mobilize Georgia and not only deliver the White House, but deliver those two Senate seats in Georgia and therefore the Senate. Is that too optimistic? I don't think it's too optimistic. I tend to, um, I tend to not, it's not that I don't care about polling as much. I think polls only tell us as much as, you know, those people, because polling is rooted in likely voters. And I think because of the work in the world that a lot of people that I communicate with exist in, a lot of those people are not the usual every cycle voters. We're talking about engaging. But what I witnessed from watching 2018, whether it was Hente for Abrams, like all these other groups and configurations that came around um, Stacey Abrams, in her candidacy, I think that there's a lot of potential that people are really underestimating what it is to have someone that they can see themselves in and not in the same way. I know people have concerns about that because of you know the, the feeling we had about Obama's election and what maybe some feel like is like the shortfalls of his administration. What I mean about that when I talk about with Stacey is because of the way Stacey understands the organizing and the way she invests in other leaders, right? You have Inse Ufat, who was executive director of New Georgia Project. That was something that was founded by Stacey Abrams and Inse. And like she has entrusted this amazing organization to Inse, who's a brilliant strategist in her own right. And I've seen Stacey lift up other, um, you know, strategists, other younger, you know, black, other people of color, you know, leaders who otherwise would be overlooked in many other places. So I, again, I know there are different people's political opinions about stuff, but I really do think when we think about the excitement and leadership necessary and the mobilization, because I think people under, like are not thinking about that, right? I really do feel like the Biden team, in my voter opinion, um, are too busy focusing on they have the game plan. This is what I did for Barack and this is what I need. We are living in a very different world post 2016 right, than that 2008 landscape. 
Um, and I don't think they're really appreciating like the, the movement fervor, also the need to get out young people voting, right? We have more, if we actually activated millennials and the new Gen Z voters, you know, you have a larger voting block um, than you do with, with older, you know, older voters who may tend to skew more Republican. And I think people are underestimating uh, or putting really too much burden on, you know, black mamas, aunties and grandmas to just make sure they get the kids to the polls instead of actually investing in doing that work. And I think the way that Stacey understands how to organize and build, and I, like I said, the other two, I think are learning that from her as well. Like I said, Julian, I think does that as well in terms of really being able to organize and build and not be afraid to say what needs to be said. I think we need that motivating people to engaging as well. We're not going to be able to peel off uh, moderate Republicans or the good people or whatever. That literally has not happened since, since Jimmy Carter. No. Um, and it's a mistake to think it's suddenly going to happen now. It, and I think, you know, you talk about people voting and the importance of down ballot. I mean, people have to realize it, as they demonstrate in this police demic mm -hmm. that, you know, it's the vote down ballot that determines the people who hire the police and oversee the police department. You know, I mean, that's the, the tangible and scientific way to address that. So um, I think that's important. Bef before we go, just your thoughts on the protests and the demonstrations, a lot happened down there in Atlanta as well in your area. Um, you, I, I, you, you didn't do any looting, anything. You weren't involved in looting. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I am like one of those high risk COVID people. So I have actually stayed away from all the crowds and stuff. I know you like me, you know, being in the street like that is in my veins. And yes. it's, killing. it's hard to not be, it's been hard to be at home while everyone else around me is out and about. I mean, what we're seeing right now has been amazing. It's also been exhausting to watch unfold. So I can only imagine how my folks are, you know, people on the front lines of this actually feel. But like, you know, the only other thing we can really think to compare this to, and it's funny, my 16 year old, he came into my room, you know, I think the first night of protests here in Atlanta, he was like, you know what they did to Rodney King, mom? I was like, yeah, I do. Cause I was actually alive when that, when, when, when that happened. And when the, you know, when protests, when riots, when uprising happened in LA, like I was actually alive and you weren't. So it's fascinating to hear these kids talking about things that are 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead before them and connect them to now. This goes back to my early comment about youth organizing and really bringing our younger folks in. I think we're seeing leadership. People are like, oh, where are the leaders? They're right there. You may not like the way they're leading, but that's also part of the mentorship and fellowship that we need to build with younger folks and how they're stepping up and how they're engaging. And, you know, these kids have already been, especially for the younger people, right? Especially if they're kids who had to deal with the sudden shift to education online. And so you had microaggressions go macro in a very different way for a lot of young people. Um, like I said, I have a 16 year old and we had a lot of issues with when, when education is online. But like they're, they have a lot going on. They're watching this world fall apart just as we are, right? And they're coming up in it. And so I, I feel like we have a real opportunity. We have a real moment. And I appreciate people like you. And uh, like we were talking about, I mentioned Reverend Moss earlier. Um, people who are holding conversations and looking at how we put this in context. Also, you know, folks are doing trainings and really trying to help people step into their voice and their power. But for me, with my work within terms of electoral justice reporting, I try to connect it, like you were saying, with like, how, what does it look like to hold people accountable in these different layers of government? What does it look like to build, sustain, continued political power across cycles in between, in the in-between time? People talk about off cycles, but like, 
you know, to quote, you know, state, former state Senator Nina Turner, there is no off cycle, we're always on. And so there's just all these things that go on that people need to be more aware of, because a lot of us just aren't. And it's not just because civic education is bad, like these are things that are really held in elite institutions and spaces that are often kept from our folks, our kids, our communities. And so we really do need to make sure that people are coming to the process and aware. So it's it's been awesome watching, you know, this, this awakening, even with my own kids who already have a certain level of understanding of politics and process, but really feeling like there's something in it for them and not just a bunch of, bunch of boring old people talking about Congress, right? Like this yeah. local stuff, really matters to them in a very real way. So can Georgia get itself together in terms of, of, of voting and polling places and mail, do you think, by November? Um, whether the state gets itself wants to get itself together there like i said there is there's this voter empowerment coalition of organizations that's going to do their best to collect them and get them to get them together to the best of their abilities um november and then just making sure that people are documenting and just trying to put as many safeguards into place ahead of time and thinking about strategically what are things that can be done um, to just make sure that our folks like have the best experience possible in light of the circumstances. We saw people at the polls last week um, giving out, or not last week, the other day, two days ago, giving out water, bringing in umbrellas and chairs and snacks and just making sure, and we call them, they call them comfort captains or line warmers, um, usually in November because it's cold, but it, I mean, it was, it was hot, it was the summertime, and we've never seen things, anything like this in a primary before, so it was a lot. So. I don't know whether the Secretary of State is actually going to get his act together, but I do know that this is a national embarrassment, regardless of what party you belong to, and no one should want an election to ever happen this way, regardless of what they want the outcome to be. So um, I know these organizations and folks are definitely going to hold their feet to the fire and keep pushing. Folks, keep up with Anoa Shanga at OurPRISM.org, all of her great work as an electoral justice correspondent, which I, I even love the, the whole concept of that because more of us need to, you know, have our journalistic skills and that type of employee. Um, and uh, obviously she's erudite. Um, the podcast, The Way with Anoa, when does it, how often does that drop? When do, can people- um, So because of health reasons I had put it in hiatus, it is coming back uh, in time for Juneteenth. So there'll be new episodes starting for next Thursday. Yeah, outstanding. So everybody getting ready for Juneteenth. That's good to know. Anoa, pleasure to chat with you. We, we like to- close at hand for your expertise from time to time, if you don't mind. But you, you've educated us a great deal, and we thank you, okay? Thank you for making the time and space. I appreciate you. Folks, don't forget, ourprism.org. Check out Anoa Changa. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.